This is the No Switch Fitness Podcast. We want to help guide your journey into developing your best physique. With your host, Luke Miller. All right, guys, welcome back to the No Switch Fitness Podcast. Today, we're going to be doing another episode of Bro Science Bullshit. So I'm super excited. Um, Alan, we've got a, a really good list of topics to go over. So why don't you kind of kick us off with what we're going to be going over for our three bro science questions of the day? Yeah, sure. How's it going, guys? Uh, Alan Murphy here. <clears throat> super excited for this episode because we're kind of getting back to the roots and the core of what we anticipated bro science bullshit to be about in the first place which is essentially questions that piss myself and Luke off to, to a great extent. All right. So uh, it goes hand in hand with this first question here, which I'm, I'm super excited to introduce to you guys. It's on progressive overload, right? You know, the, the whole, if the bar ain't bending, you're just pretending sort of mantra uh, that we see commonly in, in bodybuilding culture. Um, So first and foremost, this is going to be specific to bodybuilding uh, the realm that we're talking about this year, not powerlifting or any other sports, strongman, anything like that. All right. So let's just lay that down there. <clears throat> now, uh, we know a lot about progressive overload um, and its effect on, you know, training and adaptations and stuff like that. So we're not going to try to beat a dead horse too much here, but there's a few considerations that we kind of want to take away uh, from this whole thing. And one of the one of the reasons why this kind of gets under my skin so much is because of the um, sort of necessity to drive these adaptations, right? In regards to progressive overload. And by that I mean, you look at your logbook, you see, oh, you know, I got X amount of weight uh, for I don't know, fifteen reps last week. I need to do sixteen reps this week, or I need to add five pounds to the bar. You know, no matter what. Um, in reality, it doesn't always work like that. And um, progressive overload, I guess, is best articulated by Brian Miner. Um, I've heard him, you know, and this is paraphrasing, but he has a really good explanation in that it's more of a method used to track progression over time instead of something that's just like, I need to strive to do this every single week, no matter what, you know, ride or die. If I, you know, fucking bury it under the bar. So be it. Um, with that being said, a lot of times, um, when you get into that camp of, I have to be, you know, X amount of pounds up on the bar every week, typically your, uh, form will start to go to shit, right? That's one of the most common things I see. And one of the one of the reasons why this question irks me, or, well, it's not really a question, but this statement, this, this sort of mentality irks me so much. It's not that progressive overload is bad, of course, and we know we need that stimulus. It's if you are lifting like a complete fucking Neanderthal and just throwing shit around for the sake of beating your arbitrary number in a logbook, you're probably not getting the adaptations you want anyway. All right. You're likely driving what I like to call um, unspecific hypertrophic adaptations. It's quite a mouthful. By that, I mean, you're doing a barbell row, which is now turned into a giant barbell shrug. And instead of growing your, your back like you want to, you're growing your upper traps. Or, you know, we've seen um, 
the dumbbell row that's straight into the mid back and rhomboid and you think you're hitting lats, right? The, the quote unquote stiff leg deadlift where it's just, you're, you're dumping it into your quads or your lower back or wherever. Right. So a lot can be said about, I mean, a lot has to be said about maintaining form. Um, so that's sort of the, the groundwork there that you want to lay before you start implementing um, progressive changes to the logbook, right? Because if your form is shit and you just keep increasing weight over time, your form's still going to be shit and you're not going to be growing in the areas that you want to be growing. So yeah. what can you add to that? Yeah, I think, I think one of the things to kind of add a framework here for people is um, understanding that the progressive overload model comes from a desire to progress the mechanical tension stimulus, right? Um, and we understand that mechanical tension is going to be the primary driver for hypertrophy. So there needs to be an aspect of progressive overload, but we often miss the boat with understanding that mechanical tension is an internal stimulus. So it should be the amount of internal mechanical tension that's applied to the muscle group trying to be trained, which is where we see the main problem um, in, in understanding that progressive overload should be conceptually viewed as a, a macro progression over time and not a acute session to session have to make certain jumps in the logbook, especially when we look at uh, progressing a load of a rep range, because just like a, an addition of a rep is going to be quite a bit more of a, a total workload progression than adding two and a half to five pounds on a bar. So the big thing there is going to be understanding like, where do you take your progressions and understanding that the progressions don't matter if the internal stimulus changes, because if the internal stimulus that's being driven through how you execute a movement, um, the intentionality in which you're able to drive through that movement pattern. Um, if that changes, it changes the mechanical tensile stimulus and no longer warrants your jump and load as a progressive overload stimulus. So there's a, a fine balance to play, play, right? Like we don't want to get into these uh, arthrokinematic based setups that set moment arms so far from each uh moving joint that we're not able to exert force maximally because we're putting ourselves into positions of what's called like active insufficiency which would be basically in such a stretched position that we can't exert force um but we also need to understand that we have to be specific with our setups in order to bias the muscle group we're trying to train and keep that bias across the training block so um there's a fine balance but i think if we understand that mechanical tension is an internal stimulus that will resonate with people to the level that the progression on the bar is only warranted if the form is maintained throughout a week-to-week basis right uh, well said right because the muscle doesn't really know what the weight is again it's all sort of arbitrary like luke said it's all um tension acting internally um so with that being said, again, there, there are uh, progressionary metrics that you can make in addition to adding load to the bar, um, which are more challenging than adding load to the bar. Like Luke said, um, typically a tier system of progressing volume um, within a mesocycle, let's say, uh, would go something to the effect of you adding load would be the easiest uh, and then adding sets or oh, sorry, adding reps would be the, the second most challenging. And then adding sets would be the third most challenging. 
um, from a mathematical and like load standpoint. But again, if your form sucks um, and you're not driving tension in the muscle that you want to drive tension, it's all, it, it doesn't really matter anyway. So you can do 400 sets for back, but if you're lifting like a complete moron, it's, it's not going to make a difference. Yeah. And yeah. people like understand that progression of being easiest and then reps and then sets. Um, it just has to do with the total amount of work that's performed, right? Um, and that's just going to be, we can, we quantify it within fitness as like weights times reps times sets. Um, we also understand that we have to consider the distance and time component as far as like uh, metrics to consider within, within sets. Um, but basically what we're coming down to is like each additional poundage or rep or set is going to generate x amount of stimulus but it's also going to generate x amount of fatigue and so how we choose the progression model is going to depend on how well we're managing that fatigue so if we are recovering at a really really high basis we're taking massive logbook jumps on a week-to-week -week basis um and we like literally not getting sore and we feel like we're like barely training that warrants a little bit of a larger progression in total workload where the set addition comes in if we're kind of barely making it week to week and um you know just recovering in time but performance is still trending high and subjective measures throughout the day aren't going down the shithole then we're probably leaning a little bit more towards the reps and sets or sorry the reps and load progressions rather than set progressions because an additional set may be the thing that tips us over the edge right so this is where we now find like what progression model do we use and it's not consistent across the entire block. It's um, according to the position in the training cycle that you're at. So if you're like earlier on in a training block where volume's at its lowest, you know, you're recovering really high and it's almost feels like you're like never getting sore, then that warrants the set progression, but you're gonna find a, a volume level where you're gonna ba barely be recovering session to session. And that's kind of where you need to kind of slow the set progression as in the additional sets and more focused on the progressions across a month of these patterns um, and loading reps the kind of framework for why one's more challenging than the other for people right <clears throat> very well said um you want to go ahead and kick off the uh, second question yeah for sure so um something that like has been a big topic this year is like managing the post-show rebound. And one of the, one of the, one of my favorite, just love hearing it in a gym setting is uh, make sure you catch the post-show rebound row. So this is typically associated with, you know, a significant increase in food, um, a significant increase in uh, AAS. Um, so basically like blasting straight off the back end of, um, coming off of prep, which has a lot of negative considerations to uh, kind of take into play here. Um, but I think when we hear that, it's because of the subjective feeling that we now gain back. Um, we've been going through a contest prep for so long where fatigue has been high, we've been constantly tired, maybe pumps have slowly diminished over time. Um, performance probably has started to take kind of a, a detriment when we 
get to those later ends of prep. And then we finally feel good again. And just because we subjectively feel good um, doesn't mean that from a physiological standpoint, we're in a, a, in a an area to drive uh, tissue accretion. And I think that that's the big difference is understanding where are we at when, it, when we look at like a uh, physiological expectation. And we can look to um, some like basic studies to kind of set this framework. Trexler has a 2017 study. It's titled uh, Physiological Changes Along Competition Athletes or Competition Males and Females, something along those lines. Um, it's basically walking you through our propensity to add fat versus add muscle tissue when we look at the post-show period. Um, and it just kind of goes to show that uh, with fatigue being so high, body fat being so low, physiologically we're in a state to accumulate fat a lot more than we are uh, muscle tissue. And so this would warrant the consideration of not only understanding that, but understanding that you know, we've probably pushed the health metrics a little bit far when it comes to contest prep with the implementation of things along the back end, um, that it would be more productive when we have the capability to take a lot of progress from the reduced performance setting. So we have a lot of performance metrics that we can start to regain and drive uh, progress through. Nutritionally, we're at rock bottom. So we have a lot of progress from a nutritional standpoint to drive um, progress. And from a fatigue standpoint, we probably would have gone through a fatigue drop throughout peak week, but net systemic fatigue over a, uh, a macro view of time, we're at a period where we need to kind of drop some of those contest prep adaptations as well um, from like a net fatigue and net stress on the system viewpoint. So this is where I'm, I'm a really big advocate of getting someone to be productive within those first six to eight weeks post-show um, within like an HRT setting, um, using progressions within resetting, uh, training as like a new block, complete form reset, taking that ability to progress on a week to week basis that will be really high post show because of how far we've probably driven performance down, using the nutrition vector to drive progress um, over the six to eight weeks when we have that vector at its most um, sensitive state that we're able to use it to its highest capacity because of how one lean we are and then two how low the calories probably have gotten and then when we start to see that slowing rate of progress as long as health metrics check out we can make our first implementation of stat design as our first progression of total um anabolic load uh within that eight weekish time frame right that six to eight weekish time frame so I think when we start to present a model of progress over a post-show period, it's going to be very contextual to the individual, but I don't see a situation that warrants a large elevation in stack design or a con continuation of the elevation in stack design from prep to drive progress when we know physiologically we're not in a place to kind of um, make a lot of progress. But I think one thing that, and I kind of want to hear you touch on this, Alan, is like psychologically where we're at in, in a post-show phase, right? Like it's probably one of our psychologically most vulnerable states to be in. Right, exactly. Um, <clears throat> I was going to touch on that with another myth that coincides with this perfectly. You know, uh, a lot of people say, oh, your body's a sponge, man. Your body's a sponge after prep. It just soaks up everything. 
um, like you, like you quoted, you know, with that, or you referenced with that Trexler study, your body is a sponge, but it's not going to you know, soak up a whole lot of muscle tissue at the end of the day. Really. It's going to be a lot of fucking fat. Um, so the, the, there's a large amount of psychological and emotional considerations, um, to talk about in that regard. Right. Um, so let me set the frame for you here. You, you know, you come off on stage you, you know, you did great. You look better than you did before last time you competed, which is the goal. Um, like Luke said, your body's a little beat up, but you're ready. You know, you're excited to get back training and your pumps are unreal for that first week. Uh, you're, you're in sort of what I would consider the high of high states, right? Everything's fantastic. Everything's going great. You're just riding the wave of life and it's just, it, it's phenomenal. Um, a lot of times what will happen is more from a more from a food standpoint but i could see like um you know stress from internal organs and stuff like that causing issues um later in the in the coming weeks you know with blood work and um inappropriate changes in stack design like you were saying can cause huge uh emotional swings um and changes to hormonal profiles as well but again mainly from a food standpoint um Though, you know, and this, this, I think goes a little better with my, um, your body's a sponge, right? So you're soaking it up, soaking it up, getting those nasty pumps and then everything goes great for about a week. And then week two rolls around and you're like, oh man, you know, I'm gaining a lot of, uh, gaining a lot of water weight. I'm very bloated. I'm, you know, puffy. Uh, you, you pick the term really, um, you know, you're going to see it, your performance is still probably going to be great for the, you know, the coming, that sequential, you know, second week. Um, but then you're going to start to notice changes in the mirror, right? So the water is going to kind of um, lessen the, the bloating and stuff and the water retention will sort of lessen. But now you notice you have a nice layer of fat. And when you're on, you know, this, this high of high kind of state post show, when you were all shredded and lean and looking like twisted steel and sex appeal, now you're, now you're looking again, like the Pillsbury Doughboy in the mirror. Um, and that, that's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, post-show, post-contest depression right there. That's, that's textbook. Um, so you, you went from this, you know, Greek God or goddess looking physique to now you look like, you know, a regular guy or, or girl, or even worse, you know, you're fat, you're bloated, um, all kinds of stuff. Your body doesn't know what's going on. Um, very taxing on the digestive system as well. You know, it's hard to clear, um, especially if you're binging, it's hard to clear those foods. Uh, you may develop compensatory patterns where you're fasting to try to um, allow the digestive system to clear whatever binge you had the night before. And then you fall into sorts of eating disorders, potentially. And it's just it's an entire cascade effect of um, these, these psychological and emotional highs and lows and highs and lows and highs and lows. And it's really not. It's not good, guys, especially from a long-term standpoint as an athlete, because now you're talking about, um, you know, if you would have taken six to eight weeks to just reverse properly, um, by not doing that, you set yourself up for a potential six to eight months of unfucking the psychological and emotional damage that you've caused, the unhealthy eating habits you may have caused, and maybe to the point where you you need to see like you know a therapist or or some higher echelon um, to help you deal with these sorts of issues. So uh, it's, 
and it's sort of development as an athlete too. Like I said, you know, some people go through this, some people don't. Um, I myself have, but it's, it's also, you know, part of developing as an athlete where you get to a point where you say, okay, you know, this is, um, I'm more serious about this now. I'm, I'm going to, you know, and not fuck it up for the, for the, however many time. Um, and it's, it, once you see that growth in yourself and in the off season, the post-show phase and all that, it just propels you forward tremendously for success in your next show. Tremendously. Cause like I said, you know, psychologically we're talking about potentially months of unfucking these issues that you now have. Yeah. <laughs> plan writing a lot of plan writing should be around adherence in this phase than anything else so like where emotionally and psychologically is this individual and what can i do in order to find the best combination of better outcomes the or optimal outcomes and adherence on plan because what's optimal on paper may not be optimal from an adherence standpoint and if they can't adhere to the plan then that's just going to further drive the socket psychological issues of like going into this post-show phase like we we see the physique getting softer you're telling yourself you can't follow a plan things along those lines so we create this vicious loop that then kind of carries in the off season so uh when we when we consider how to manage that post-show phase i think it's um taking the minimal effective dose of all the vectors that we have for progress um in order to create the maximum response and then finding ways to adhere it high, as high as possible so that we set up the model of long-term progression over the entire off season um, and also progression of psychological health back to a stable state. So um, it's an interesting dynamic to play, right? Because you, as a coach or an athlete who wants to really improve, like you want to be on the plan that's optimal for progress, which is good and should be discussed, but we also have to understand like if you can't adhere to that optimal plan, we need to find a way to adhere better. So it's uh, it's an interesting phase uh, for an athlete because it can determine the success of the off season from there on for that year. Um, but I think that kind of carries us into the considerations for question three. Um, there's one quick thing I wanted to touch on on that. Um, just from an athlete and coaching standpoint, guys, communicate with your coach and coach communicate with your athletes, obviously, right? So a lot of times what I see is um, from an athlete standpoint, typically someone newer, you're communicating with your coach probably every day up until your show for the last week or two. Um, and then once your show is over with that will probably come into the form of maybe like twice a week. Right. So you, you do start feeling like you have more independence and more freedom. Um, and to an extent you are a little alone if these binging and, you know, restriction patterns occur, it's your job to communicate to your coach and just, just be, honest and upfront with them. You know, a lot of people think they're going to get in trouble or your coach is going to get mad or anything. That's not, that's not the case at all guys. So, you know, be honest with them so they can help you. And then, you know, coaches, of course, post-show maybe, you know, so, I mean, just know your athletes, some athletes, you may have to check in with more, some athletes, you may have to check in with less post-show, you know, coming out of a contest. Um, and that's, that's just kind of all I wanted to touch on with that before we go into our next segment. Yeah, let's go ahead. So number three, right? The drug stuff, the fun stuff. All right. Uh, this is, this is a common one that I've gotten for a long period of time. It's the, I call it the, the bro, the intermediate bros bulking cycle. 
Right. And I, I've seen it across the board at all levels, really. Um, anywhere from beginner to advanced, you got, you got your tests, you got your EQ, you got your D baller and a draw, right? That's your, that's your big bulking stack. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about potential implications um, that this particular stack design has um, and potential health risks and, and stuff like that. So just kind of diving into it. Uh, test EQ and deanabole specifically all stem from a category of anabolics uh, classification that I call test and friends. So test and friends are tests and test derivatives, right? Um, it's going to be all your, <laughs> all your testosterone um, derivatives in one column. So that's going to be, you know, EQ, uh, deanabole, uh, T-ball, and some others. Now I put anadrol on here because of estrogenic conversion. So a lot of these, a lot of these um, steroids in the test derivatives in test and friends category act very similar um, in their estrogenic conversion or the rate of estrogenic conversion, right? So EQ, it doesn't aromatize too much, doesn't convert to estrogen too much, but it still does to some extent. The main problem you're going to have with EQ is it's going to drive red blood cell count really freaking high, all right? And you're already going to get a good amount of that with tests, and you're going to get a lot of that with probably Danibol plus water retention. So you're asking for sort of a blood pressure nightmare there, um, which is one of the main problems with this. Like I was saying, anadrol, anadrol is a DHT derivative, but it still converts to estrogen at a very high rate. So I would kind of throw that in there in the mix of probably not a good oral to match with these compounds um, because of the amount of water retention and stuff like that that you're going to get from higher levels of conversion to estrogen. Um, and again, guys, you're asking for very high blood pressure, uh, very thick, you know, blood. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of health problems that this stack design could cause. Um, and I think Luke's actually going to touch on it a little bit now. Yeah. Oh, where to start here? Um, so there's a, a lot of considerations when we talk to like, uh, the implementation of, of bulking cycles. Right. And so the way that I view it is like vectors in which we can influence for progress. So we have training as a vector, we have nutrition as a vector, we have PEDs as a vector, and within the subcategory of PEDs, um, we're going to have a couple different vectors that we can influence when we talk about uh, anabolics, right? So commonly we, we talk like AR, so uh, androgen receptor, um, we can talk growth hormone to IGF-1 axis as a pathway and we can mediate progress all across the long term by utilizing these various different pathways. Now, one of the things that I think that we need to consider within regression over time is the maintenance of health values over that long period of time so that we can keep that vector of progress moving for a longer period of time. Tissue accumulation can only happen at a certain rate, okay? So when we see these stack designs that may um, create large elevations in total systemic hormonal profiles, but ultimately lead to negative health outcomes, we are not only putting ourselves at danger for, for long-term health risk, because let's be honest, a lot of these things that we see don't happen acutely, right? They happen more from 
chronic usage of these compounds over time. So like LVH, things along those lines, which will be a product of running compounds that will create large amounts of water retention. When we talk about DVOL, elevations in CBCs that are gonna lead to higher blood pressures. When we talk about LVH specifically, um, and then also possibly like kidney issues with high blood pressures over long periods of time. So we need to understand that the progress that we take on a week to week or a month to month basis can only happen at such a maximal rate. And we need to be implementing things to influence these pathways in order to maximize progress within um, the acute time frame, but then give ourselves run rate runway to progress over the macro or the uh, chronic timeline. So like the long, the long-term timeline. And I think the, this stat design is typically associated with um, more on a lack of understanding of the, the health issues that go along with this. Um, a lot of times you'll even see like a nandrolone thrown into this. So it'll be like a test DECA EQ type of combo. Um, and I think that this is very short-sighted in getting an athlete to their peak potential because we're running compounds that are going to be detrimental to health in 9, 10, 11, 12 weeks time. So that's where I would start to present a new model for progression. Not new, not new, but a different model for progression over time um, and the considerations of one, not using orals within a bulking cycle, just from like the negative health outcomes that we're going to consider. Um, and then two, looking to influence progress across all of these different pathways um, and, and writing stack designs according to allowing estradiol to elevate so that we get the benefits of a little bit higher estradiol, but controlling it to the point that um, we don't see estrogenic side effects. Influencing the AR obviously is our main one, using things like the growth hormone IGF-1 axis to drive progress. Um, and I think that when we look at that, that that presents a lot different of a stack design than tests in EQ and Nandrolone and D-ball slash Anadrol all together. Um, now the only, only place I've seen EQ considerations, um, and, and, and another thing too is like the clinical significant data of EQ is like very minimal. So we, we need to understand that we don't have a lot of uh, medical use application within EQ. Um, but when we talk about using it within bodybuilding, I have seen some other people use it within people who are a little bit more sensitive to estradiol based side effects from like higher test based cycles. Um, I would make the argument that there's a different way to manage that other than EQ um, to elicit the uh, same result or a better result. Um, but that's kind of like where some people who are a little bit more in the know <laughs> and don't just go with like this bro, like just take test, uh, test DECA and EQ and you'll, you'll grow like a weed. Might kind of start to present a case for EQ, um, but still not a big fan. And so like we need to kind of lay a framework of progress over time with influencing these variables and gold standards are going to be test some DHT derivative um, and growth hormone, and then just finding the ratio of those compounds um, and using inclusion of nandrolone as a progression um, over time. Right. So it all, it all kind of stems back to understanding the different categories um, of these anabolics and learning how to pair them better uh, from each category, not from, typically the same category 
and it's it's also based off the individual and their response, um, of course. Um, another quick thing is if you're if you're running a stack design that causes high amounts of estrogen conversion, you're typically going to have to use high dosages of AIs, which are going to skew your um, lipid profiles, right? So then that's that's an even other another health implication there that you're going to have to worry about on top of everything that Luke had previously listed. Additionally. These drugs aren't the best necessarily builders for raw tissue accumulation, you know, in the long term. Um, there's probably better drugs out there. Um, like Luke said, uh, the rate of tissue gain over a period of time is is somewhat limited. So when you talk about, oh, you know, oh, man, oh, I, I gave this guy a test deck EQ and he put on 30 pounds. And it's like, yeah, well, well, then when he got off or when he went down to a TRT dose, he lost probably... 2025 of that because it was water retention um, from the estrogenic conversion and you know all kinds of stuff uh, intracellular fluid and all that stuff yeah so I, I think it just presents maybe like having a sit down with your coach and hopefully receiving an explanation of kind of the, the methodology or the, the logic that I kind of walked through and then setting a framework for progression over time that would allow for that that looks different for every person um because that progression over time will change based on the timeline so based on like how soon this person needs to compete or um how long of an off season someone has so there's not like one presentation of a model that i could present within this to give a framework because it, it is kind of timeline dependent but i think it it starts to give like a higher level of thinking to okay we we have an understanding of these drugs to this point now that we can deploy drugs on a needs basis and not um, just kind of throw the kitchen sink at it. And and just because the bro at the gym said that this is what they did to get huge. So uh, I, I think one of the big things is understanding that, you know, there are people out there that do a lot of great content on this stuff um, and, and things along those lines. And um, we kind of lay out a framework for that within like, J3U and stuff. So if you guys need follow-up information, you can always check that out. Um, but I think that kind of lays out everything as far as addressing issues that we'll see within this. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on across any of these topics before we kind of head off here? Uh, no, I no, I feel like we covered covered all the bases pretty well here. Um, again, there's no you know perfect drug. It's all just sort of independent on the person. And that's basically the end of that. I'm going to pimp out some of the things we're doing right now because it's that time of the podcast and trying to pimp out the things that, that we do on a week to week basis. So um, update, we have a new seminar coming to San Antonio. It's October 24th um, at the Muscle Factory. So super excited for that. Tickets should be going live relatively soon after this podcast release. Um, you guys make sure to check out the new YouTube channel. We have a lot of great content coming there in the form of like training videos. Alan's our posing series for you guys to kind of have a deeper understanding of everything that actually goes into posing um, and, and a bunch of other things too. So make sure you check that out. It's under the Nutswitch Fitness um, brand name. So make sure you guys check that out too. And then just interact with us. Like if you guys have questions or want a question answered on one of these podcasts, just drop it in either our DMs or a comment on the post or whatever it may be. Um, and we may put out some some content-based Q&As and uh, maybe kind of hit that for you guys in the future. So make sure you check us out on at No Switch Fitness on Instagram and 
at a underscore mer 43 on Instagram for Alan. Um, interact with our content. Let us know if there's anything you guys want to hit. And other than that, take note, I'll switch in the pursuit of results, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks, guys. See you.